O God, whose spirit moved upon the waters, we remember those who live in lands of drought or flood, whose harvest is not enough or not at all. Today they rope, they sow in tears. Soon may they reap with shouts of joy. We remember those whose water supply is polluted by negligence or need, those to whom water brings disease, poisoning, or even radiation, whose gift of life you give, this gift of water, is actually cursed by death. Today they sow in tears, but soon, Lord, may they reap with shouts of joy. And we remember ourselves. We confess that we devastate the waters and the fruits of the earth, and we are unwilling to form one circle with our brothers and sisters around the world. And now we are invited in the silence of our own hearts to lift up the needs of ourselves and others that we carry into this place. And many of us share the concern for our immigrant and specifically Hispanic neighbors on a weekend that has brought much anxiety in their communities. We pray specifically for the neighbors of our 8th Street Church, our neighbors of the Segunda Iglesia del Nazareno Church. We pray for the immigration lawyers and legal aides within our own congregation. We pray for family members who are trying desperately to navigate the immigration process and fleeing for their lives. And we ask, Holy God, that you would provide for and protect the vulnerable people who are made in your image, who collect along our southern border. And we ask that your church would be a part of the answer to our prayers. And so for these and many others, we ask merciful creator to shed their tears that soon we may all reap with shouts of joy. And we pray together. Amen. Well, good evening to you. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors and uh, it is wonderful to be in worship with you this evening. A couple things. Thank you, Kevin, for your kind words and for being willing to share the story of Indigo Acres. It's really a story of old things being made new. And so we're really grateful for that. We talk about resurrection life all of the time around here. And you and Robin's life are uh, examples to us and give us hope. So I'm grateful for that. The other thing I want you to know is it's hot in this room. Have you decided that yet? We are in an old church building and we are trying to learn how to manage it. And so the invitation is always extended to the people in the back. It is much cooler up here in the front. And I try to tell people that uh, the seats are more comfortable as well. So uh, I'm not joking about this. Anytime you need to move in this, uh, in this sanctuary, we invite you to do that. So um, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 6. And I have friends who have Bibles. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. They will bring you a Bible. We have Bibles offered in both Spanish and English for those of you who uh, perhaps speak Spanish as your first language or you're practicing your Spanish. If you don't own a Bible, this is yours to keep. But I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation in English. 
And so I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 6, starting with verse 5. We'll read a few verses, and then we're going to skip over uh, to chapter 9 and and start in verse 8. So hear the word of the Lord for us this evening. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he had ever made people and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am so sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at that time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jabbath. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Move to verse 17. Look, he says, I am about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for you and your family and for all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as God commanded. Look at uh, chapter 9, starting with verse 8. Then God told Noah and his sons after the flood, I, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals. Yes, every living creature on earth. Look at verse 20. And after the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Last Sunday, I introduced us to a new series called God is Green. It was the last Sunday was the first setup, uh, the first weekend was a setup for the series. And I began by reminding all of us that we are invited to be full-bodied disciples, this means that we're invited to care about things that God cares about. We're invited to, we're invited to care about uh, others. We're invited to care about uh, the planet and everything that is a part of it. And the H Street Church is a safe place to have holy conversations about these kinds of things. We've said it a million times, now nearly for three and a half years, that neighborliness is essential for us. And neighborliness is the foundation of what it means to usher in the kingdom of God. We confess, and we did just a few minutes ago, we confess the way of Jesus is demonstrated in neighborliness 
And we confess also at the same time that it is essential for good living on the planet. We need to keep this in mind as we remember our neighbors that are detained on the southern border. And we need to keep this in mind and consider this when we think about our neighbors in Lawton and those who live in fear here in Oklahoma City. Being good neighbors is not just about, uh, it's not just limited to those that we know or those who live in our neighborhood or those who happen to look like us. Being good neighbors is more holistic. There's more of a global picture to neighborliness. We should begin to think neighborly about those who will live on this planet well after we're gone. So when we talk about and we think about climate change and environmental issues, planet care, recycling, food production, industry, pollution, when we think about progression, we want to think well about these things. Because thinking well about the natural world and the mystery of the cosmos and our place in it is actually, it actually has a name. It's called eco-theology. And eco-theology is about the practices of listening and trusting that, that there is a dialogue going on between two very important books. The first book is the book of the Holy Scripture, and the second book is the book of Holy Creation. And we believe that the dialogue between these two books bears witness to the renewing and the good work of the Creator God. And we said last week that it's important to practice reading both of these books. We know what it means to read the Holy Scripture, but we don't think very often, I should say, I could, should confess, and I'll, I don't think I or many Christians think very often about reading the book of Holy Creation. We don't do that work very well. We don't listen very well. We don't study and pay attention to the dialogue that's happening between these two books. We read an interesting text just a minute ago. It's one that you've heard before. Maybe your mom like took your nursery and draped it in Noah's Ark kinds of things. This is an ancient narrative in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6. But before this narrative in Genesis chapter 6, you had another one called the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. And the, in Genesis chapter 1, it says this. It says that the earth was formed out of the waters. Now, this is really interesting, everybody. I've been thinking about this all week. You are not wowed. I can tell. The looks on your face. You don't see it as good news. But this is really interesting. Over the last 100 years, maybe 150 years, the Bible has been misused. The Bible has been treated like it's some sort of 21st, or 20th, 21st century manual for science or history or medicine or astronomy or whatever. I once heard a woman say this. She said, I believe that the Bible contains all wisdom and knowledge of all creation and all everything that you've ever needed to know about the universe, both past, present, and future. You know, I know this is going to sound controversial, but hang with me for a second. Because nowhere in the Bible does the Bible say that about itself. So if I could personify the Bible just a little bit. The Bible seems secure enough. Maybe it went to counseling or something like that. It seems secure enough not to have to be a history book or a science publication or a political manual. The Bible is okay with being what it is. An ancient narrative 
that draws us in so that we might understand ourselves or our world or this mysterious God just a little bit better. And that's what makes the Bible unique and it makes the Bible powerful. It's a picture painted so that we might find ourselves in the place of a story mysterious as we live in a, in a world that carries really unique and interesting and even strange and, and peculiar properties. And the beginning, in a very poetic, almost musical kind of way, is not, it's not saying something just so that there is fact. It's saying something so that we're moved in our emotions. In the beginning, it says, the earth was formed out of the waters. Scientists roll their eyes at this, and they should. But you know who doesn't? Musicians, artists, poets. Because these words are not about scientific discovery. They reach into the depths of who we are, and they speak to what we long for. They give us an identity. They remind us of what it means to be human. In high school... Uh, Mrs. Stanton, remember her? Mrs. Stanton, she used to read these ancient texts. She used to make us read these ancient texts. And, and as we would struggle through them together, we would, we, she would always say, you need to look beyond what the words say so that you can see what they really mean. The earth was formed out of the waters is a really, 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 really good news statement. Don't just read the words, see what they mean. Look, look for the key word, I mean the earth. The, the earth is this wonderful place where you stand. It's the place where I stand now and you sit now. It's the place that serves you and it's the place that sustains you. It, it provides resources for you. It's that place where you're able to go and build a home where you're able to work upon. It's the place that provides a platform for friendship building and, and love making. It's the place where we all are, where children are raised, and it's the place where they get to play. It's the place that the scientific community doesn't even know, uh, doesn't, still doesn't know much about because there's so much more to still be discovered. It's marvelous and it's mysterious, and in a creative way it provides the ecosystem that gives us the ability to survive. And, and God said it, and, and he, he looked at it, and, and God said that the earth and every living thing on it was, was good. And it is. And I'm with God on that one. And, and Bob Ross, the painter, even gets this. The earth was formed out of the waters. There's a second key word. You know what it is. The waters. The earth was formed out of the waters. Friends, that's the gospel. Now think about this as if you were listening to poetry. Because if the earth represented all that was good, and it was separated from the waters, the implication is there. Mrs. Stanton, she wants you to hear it. The implication is there. That the waters must have represented everything that was actually bad. Have you ever thought about that before? Notice that the good earth was separated from the bad waters. This tells us something. It says that the very first act of God was a good and healing and helping act. 
Water in the book of the Holy Scripture represents life. Water in the book of the Holy Scripture represents a life in a world that is void and empty and in pain and is full of chaos. Ancient people groups uh, told this, this story that God separated the good earth from, from the bad waters years and years and years before it was ever written down. And in doing so, the reason that they told this story is because they claimed that their God was unlike any other God. And he was interested in making a world right for a creation that was drowning. I think that's why musicians and poets and pastors... And recovering alcoholics or abused women that have gotten into safety or foster kids that have found their way into an adoptive family or an employee that got the, found his way out of a toxic work environment. I think that they love this line. God did this with the earth from the waters. It's hopeful those of us who've been in bad situations know what this means. It's a story that says that God is working on his end to push back the waters and the chaos in our lives. That's what we read in Holy Scripture, in Holy Creation. I give you, just if you would, just look around. Because Holy Creation is this amazing, beautiful picture of a God that orders things so intently and establishes and even promises a predictable world. It comes complete with seasons and cycles in nature. But instead of participating in that or stewarding it well, it's exploited to the point of destruction. Land degradation, deforestation, waste, habitat destruction, desertification, acid in the ocean, air pollution. Creation, as God has put it together, is being wrecked. And this is the problem that we see in the flood narrative. It's a, it's a, it's a narrative of a creation not cared for. The, the text says that the heartbeat of the human becomes wicked. The word in the human that we translate wickedness is more than just like personal sins, things I've done wrong. Uh, It actually is the exploitation and the domination of that which only belongs to God. It means that there is violence against the earth and creation and in turn other beings. And after this beautiful creation scene that we have where the shalom of God reigns and people live well and have all they need and there is a common good among everybody and everybody had their physical needs taken care of and there was harmony, wickedness works its way into humans. They saw themselves as heroes and they claimed domination over the earth. And what was once good is no longer good. And so we read the story that we've known from childhood. That God sees this evil, that God is grieved by this evil, and that God makes, he has regrets for making human beings. And so the waters come again. And the earth is no longer separate from the waters. In the text, God makes a deliberate, conclusive decision God will wipe away all living beings from the face of the earth. The floodgates will open up to release the waters that once separated the land created and the very, it seems like the very judgment of God is unleashed. The floodwaters represent the judgment 
of God. And the meaning behind the words are clear, that this God takes with uncompromising seriousness his own purposes for creation. In other words, God has expectations for his world. And that's serious business for us. Considering the track we're on when it comes to the way in which we serve the planet that was designed to serve us and we were to serve. But we remember what Mrs. Stanton said. Because she would want us to dig a little bit deeper. She would want us to look behind what the words say so we can find out what they really mean. Because this story also indicates that because God is so serious and uncompromising about his creation and that this God has expectations for his world, this God, and do not miss this, refuses to abandon it. One scholar says that while the flood narrative is actually is, is about judgment, the judgment of God, it actually is more about the pathos of God. Uh, it, that's another way to say it's actually more, the story is more about the pity and the sadness God feels when creation is ruined. Another scholar I know says God's judgment, when you ever read a judgment text in the Bible, you should know that it's simply God's grace in disguise. And you can see it here. Because the Hebrew words that are translated into English don't, aren't translated super well. Because what you want to know and what Mrs. Stanton would want you to know in this text is this. That God carries the feelings of a broken hearted parent, not an angry tyrant. When you read this text, it is like a father's heart broken. Now there are many, 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 many ancient flood stories uh, that, have, that have been uh, told throughout history. The Gilgamesh flood story of the Mesopotamians, that happened in like 7th century BC. The Sumerian creation story was like 1600 years before Jesus. There were other, there were other flood stories. There were ancient Greek flood stories. There are flood stories embedded in cultures all around the world. And it's interesting because they all have this single thing in common. They depict a flood, sometimes in a global scale, and it's usually sent by a deity or deities that want to destroy civilization as an act of divine retribution. In other words, the gods are mad, and so they want to destroy the world of flood. But the one that came out of the tradition that we look at, the Abrahamic tradition, the one that we read here, it's it's got a unique spin because the wickedness of creation as they destroyed creation doesn't make God mad. It breaks the heart of God. God regrets creating humans. Listen to what that means. We have a God with feelings. And you can only have regret if you only understand how to love. This is about as honest as it gets. The grief is so raw in the heart of God. God loves creation so much and is so brokenhearted when it comes to the ways in which humans destroy creation that God himself actually has regret. There is no other feeling that I know of that is worse than regret. But unlike those other flood stories where the gods are angry, this God's regret is overcome then by God's insistent commitment to creation. And God becomes even more serious about his world. 
So God sends the flood. Now you know, and I've said it, that water represents chaos in the scriptures. But again, if you're listening to Mrs. Stanton's class, you need to look beyond what the words say so that you can see what they really mean. And if you do that, you'll find that the symbol of water, while it represents chaos, it also represents the willingness of God to do the work of purification. To purify is another way to say to provide the help that we so desperately need. That's what the flood represents. It represents getting help. Friends, we need help. It means that God is about the business of making things clean, of cleaning things up. Think about this. This is the cry. This is what people want in Flint, Michigan. This is what they want in Puerto Rico and Honduras and Nicaragua. This is the longing of the children in detention centers who cry, Necesito agua. I need water. And men trapped in cages on the border who shout, No, I do just. There are no showers. It's not just a historical or scientific account. To view them that way is just to see words on a page. But these are narratives that invite the listening community to penetrate the very heart of God. And, and in this story, and this story was told many, many times in light of other stories so that Israel could differentiate themselves and that they might be able to live into the calling that was given to them. Don't be a curse to others. Don't be a curse to the world. Be a blessing to the nations. Be a blessing to everyone was their call. And God's flood is actually a blessing that comes through water. The most precious resource on the planet It's in that that humanity is delivered. And it's symbolized in the person of Noah. From that point forward, from the point where Noah is mentioned, water takes on a whole new meaning. Because you know the biblical story. You know that Moses hits a rock when everybody was thirsty and water comes out. Joshua's army is taken through water. Water is used to help Gideon choose 300 warriors. Elisha uses water to heal Naaman. Rebecca waters camels, and it's a sign of her beautiful and kind heart. Jesus turns water into wine. The Samaritan woman finds life because of living water. Water not just symbolically, but very literally becomes our gift. It is not an entitlement. Those of us who have the ability to drink and to shower and bathe and to serve water every day, it is not an entitlement. And to treat it and to treat others who don't have it as such is to see ourselves in the wrong light. Mrs. Stanton was right. If you look beyond what the words say, you can see what they mean. Because... In God, there is always an alternate possibility. And that alternate possibility comes in another key word. And his name is Noah. Noah is not the hero here. Instead, he's just this bridge used by God to offer up the new possibility. To say to us that the human, that the human in the story is the way that God decides to, again, separate the earth from the waters, to remove the chaos. God uses this this man whose name almost means nothing. 
And the good news of the text is that God is about using humans to, to help put the world back together when it is in such a mess. You know, God, this is to tell us that God is interested in using us, the people of the 8th Street Church, to bring shalom again. And the reason that I know this is because if we look to see what the words mean, we'll see that the whole point is revealed at the end of the narrative. It says this, that God establishes a covenant with Noah. In other words, it means that God is making a promise to you. He will never give up on you. But not only that, he's inviting you and me into this work. That promise does not happen in any of their flood narratives. In this one, the post-flood, post-chaos situation is decisively different from any other story. God himself makes an irreversible commitment. And in an extraordinary resolve, God now says, never again. I was reading this story, and I was looking at the story of Noah, and I couldn't help myself. Do you know what the story of Noah is like? Baptism. In baptism, think about it. Those of you who have been baptized before, you are pushed into the water under the control of somebody else. It comes in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when you are immersed, the waters collapse over you. We cannot breathe. Our feet are out from under us, and it's certain death. In the old days, baptism candidates were actually stripped naked, representing human vulnerability and our uselessness and our shame and our our sickness. And Noah passes through the waters, through the flood in the same kind of way. And like Noah in baptism, we are literally in the chaotic waters soaking wet, but we realize that the waters become a symbol of God's covenant promise to us. God makes a judging rule in the baptism waters. Never, no more. You are mine. I, the Lord God, am completely resolved in my commitment to you, and I will work on your behalf. And as your judge, I I judge that you belong to me. That is what happens in baptism. We are purified. We get the help we need. We're restored. And a judgment statement has been made. Evil does not hold on to me any longer. And in the mysterious and this mysterious act, there in those waters, it's like the transcendent and the imminent, the divine and creation come together. And we are united. Baptism is God's claim that he is uncompromising in his commitment to restore creation. And Noah represents the new concept that the gods aren't mad, but instead that God has given us a restart, a mulligan. Our image is reclaimed. We are indeed made in God's image, and we share now in God's vocation to take care of the whole world. The meaning behind the words is this. We are now entrusted with a fresh rule. So my friends, make something good out of this planet. Do you know what Noah does first thing after he gets out of the boat? He plants a garden. He does what Adam and Eve and the others who took uh, domination and he... He, he does what polluters and abusers and what racists, they won't do. He symbolized his covenant back to God by planting a garden. He begins in obedience by making something of this world. 
After church last week, I was talking with Scott Davis out here on the steps, and and as we were talking, it wasn't anything he said, but all of a sudden, I had this very uncomfortable feeling come over me. It was strong, and and I didn't like it very much. It was it was as strong as as, as that time when I felt the call to quit the church where I was serving and start this one, which was a really scary thing. And and my feeling was this. If I take this invitation to participate in the restoration with God, things are going to have to change in my, in my life. I, I had forgotten that this is exactly what my baptism meant the whole time. We are invited into a whole new way. A way that we cannot predict. A way of living that is for our neighbor. A way of living that is uncomfortable. It's a baptized way. We have been invited to drown in the flood of the baptism waters. That is the way of Jesus. You know, we have this bad habit. We read these two stories, the story of the Holy Scripture and Holy Creation, and our first question is to ask, what can I get out of this? Or how can I use this? This week, a national leader said that global warming and the melting ice caps is actually a good thing because Think of all the routes that will open for commerce. That's the wrong way to think about this. But instead, we, Christian people, we sit in the tension and the dialogue between holy, crea- holy Scripture and Holy Creation. And as it's presented to us, and by God's grace, we are a- invited to ask, in what way can we obey this? In what way can I get in on this? You know, seeking out how we might be able to do good as God is doing good. That's the stuff of holiness. It's no coincidence that the writers of the Gospels used metaphors for Jesus like living water, vines, trees, light, fruit. Because creation is the language of God. Jesus is the living water, so we drink from him. He is the vine, so we are the branches that produce fruit. In a tangible way, as we read the flood story, we remember that two-thirds of the planet is actually covered with water. Ours is the water planet, unlike any other in our solar system. But we need to recognize at the same time that 97% is salt water and 85% of the fresh water is locked up in polar ice caps, which means that less than one half of 1% is accessible as drinking water for all of us. Those of us who have water and access to water must recognize that water is a gift. It is not an entitlement. Fresh water is very rare. But living water is available to all as he offers himself in covenant love to us. The Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus, the living water, do you know what he does in one of his last acts before his death? He strips himself of his clothing, puts a towel around his waist, puts a towel around his arm, takes a basin, and with water, performs the duties of a servant by washing the feet of his disciples. And then he says these words to his disciples, and they are strong. Do the exact same thing that I'm doing. Go, serve, 
Wash your neighbor's feet. Love one another. And then you know what he did? He served them dinner. Bread. Made from the stuff of the earth. Wine. Made from the stuff of the earth. Now we cannot forget that taking care of this planet and obeying God in this way is actually a form of giving. It's about serving. It's about serving people that can't say thank you. It's about serving people that we will never meet and that have not yet been born. God placed us here because he wants us to choose him and to choose his way. So the question that I want to ask us, friends, because I don't know how to do this. This is the scary part that happens to me. This is the part that I was feeling when I was talking to Scott out on the steps. How are we going to do this? Are, as we're invited to consider our environmental impact, how, how do we think about pesticides and what it does to our neighbors? And how do we think about water pollution? And how do we consider and pray for our friends in, in areas that have no water? How do we steward it well becomes, because it comes to our house and, and because it is a symbol of purification? What is, what is God wanting us to do to help the whole world? And what are we actually being called to do? We know what Jesus would have us do because he says to us, when you offer a drink to those who are thirsty, it's as if you were offering that to me. This is why we said this sermon series is a conversation because it is not just something that happens in worship. It is something that we take with us and we talk about amongst us. So I invite you to do that. You know, most of the time, the churches, I said this last week, the church is set up to cater to a group of God consumers. But one of the things that we hope happens here is, is that our dream, our dream is about Eucharistic hospitality. That means that we are interested in widening the table for our benefit, but also for the benefit of others. And, and, it's and we want to do this because this is the way of Jesus. Jesus' meal was a meal prepared so that everybody could participate. And it's a meal prepared from the very elements of the earth. So I want to invite you to this table as a way to engage in this conversation. I want to give you an opportunity, though, before you come to this table, to maybe pause. And think about what God is calling you to do as you live in this community. In what way is God using your talents or would he use your talents? In what way would God invite you to participate in remaking the world? In what way is God actually asking you to teach the rest of us how to do it better? In what way are you living out your baptism? I want to remind you, that this, this table of Eucharistic hospitality comes in a story. And the story goes like this. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And if that is your story, and you want to live into the good call that is God's, I want to invite you to this table to receive the grace that comes here. So in his generosity, and it looks like a whole group of people are coming, but I want to remind you that in his generosity, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed by those he came to save, broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, and I want you to eat this in remembrance of me. 
And then after supper, in the same way, he said this, he held up the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that comes in my blood. And I want you to drink this in affectionate remembrance of me. Friends, come to this table with the same enthusiasm as these children and participate in the good work of God as he is fully resolved in his covenant love and his commitment to you. I invite you to come whenever you are ready.